Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 21st, 2020. This is episode 2604 of the Survival Podcast, and it's the Expert Council Show for 22120. I got a lot of great stuff on the docket for you today. Here's what we got. Uh, number one, I got a quote of the day by a guy who's actually been on the show. And it had nothing to do with permaculture because he doesn't know the hill or high beans from permaculture or gardening. His name is Jeffrey Tucker. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, we got a quick call out for the last three seats available with Nicole Sauce at the Living Free in Tennessee Workshop in uh, Central Tennessee. Actually, it's kind of central eastern Tennessee, I guess. Middle Tennessee, I think is what they call it. But uh, it's not far from Nashville. And if you want to meet some really cool people, you want to get on out there. Nicole will tell you about that. Sean Mills is going to talk about choosing a brand of solar manufacturer and the future of solar pricing and solar in general. Uh, John Pugliano is going to talk about getting on a budget for those of us who need it. And exactly the opposite problem. We've got more money to save than I can cram in. What's, what are we going to do about maybe backdoor and some tax-deferred Roth money? And some other things. John's got a combo, like he usually does, of putting stuff together. Doc Kelly is going to talk to us about CWD and the risk to canines eating dead deer. Jeff Lawton's going to talk to us about a good problem to have, a surplus of paper. Guy's got a whole bunch of rolls of paper. Wants to know what to do with it. Patrick Rohrman's going to discuss the difference between oil and wet sharpening stones. I'm going to talk, uh, well, Steve Wise first is going to talk about what we might see from Second Amendment showdowns like in Virginia. And right on that, I'm going to talk about a little article I wrote on Facebook yesterday. And it has to do with the term boogaloo. And if you've not been under a rock, you know the boogaloo is code for basically a second American revolution. But what the media is reporting it is, is a call by right-wing extremists for a violent uprising. That is not what boogaloo means. That's not what anybody's saying other than maybe a couple retards think it means. I'm going to read the article with a few um, additions to it that I wrote yesterday, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the boogaloo is really all about and why the last people in this that are violent is the side using the term boogaloo, at least the one that started using it. That, that is the side of people that believe in the right to keep and bear arms. And we're going to talk about the fact that the media is, I don't believe the media is lying here. A lot of it is fake news, fake news. I understand that the news is fake all the time. I'll even, when we do this, I'm going to give some examples of fake news that have nothing to do with politics. And so it's easy to just say they're doing it to lie, to deceive, to cause problems or whatever. I don't think that's the case here. There's an old saying, never attribute to malice that with, which can be explained through stupidity. I think the ignorance and stupidity both in this situation are extreme. And I really think that in many ways, the left on the political side and the media, which is very left as well, do not understand the force they're playing with here. They don't get it, and they don't understand that the boogaloo is not a threat. It is a pleading, a warning, and a promise. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Before we do, let me remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is to do... Uh, is to become a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, 
You'll help this show in the work that we do. And the cost is 50 bucks a, a year. And, you know, it's 50 bucks a year. It's not a huge amount of money. It's less than $5 a month for this show. But I've always been big on I should give you more than you pay in any relationship that's financial, that the way that you keep customers and you keep adding customers is you, you sell something that's such a good value that it doesn't make sense not to buy it. That's what I think MSB is. And the biggest way we do that is through the discounts that we offer. And so what I've been wanting to do the past few weeks is on Thursdays and Fridays give you, you know, somebody or a group of somebodies that do discounts for you and remind you about them. Well, Bob Wells Nursery, somebody's been with us for a long time. They were bought out recently, but the new owner walked up to me at the, the Belt and Mother Earth News Fair and says, you know, I'm excited about continuing to work with you guys. Of course, we've maintained the discount. Bob Wells Nursery has um, an incredible assortment of edible trees, bushes, shrubs, and vines. A lot of stuff you just really can't get anywhere else, and they're only a couple hours to my east out near Lindale, Texas, which is out kind of sort of in the Tyler-ish area. In fact, I'll be going out there probably next month to do some video work on site and uh, you know just kind of shore things up with them being that there's been an ownership transfer. But they're an awesome, awesome company, and they have awesome stuff, and they, get, they give you 10% off. And trees and bushes and shrubs are expensive. They really are. And that 10% alone can do a big part of returning you your 50 bucks a year. So that's just one of almost 80 companies that do discounts for you in the TSP MSB. Check them out today. And I've had people recently, well, how do I get the discount? Well, are you a member? Yeah, well, go log in. Log into your site. There's one of the pages called Benefits, and it has all of the, uh, all of the vendors listed. You click on any one of them, it jumps to their little scenario and tells you what they do and what they offer and what have you. And whenever you need anything, consider checking it out if you're a member because get your discounts. I have people that say, like, I don't really need the discounts, Jack. I just, I just do it to support you. I appreciate it, but take the discounts. Because by taking the discounts, not only do you help you, you help me. The better my partners do, the better the story I have to tell, and the more discounts I can get from other companies. So, anyway, with that, let's talk about our quote of the day from Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey Tucker is a hell of a voice in the world of liberty and freedom, and a real voice in liberty and freedom. There's so many people now that are in this liberty movement that don't seem to understand what liberty is. I'm looking at you, Liberty Hangout. Anyway, Jeffrey Tucker once said, people who can't imagine order without imposition always end up favoring power over liberty. And I believe that is absolutely the case. That is the main reason people sell out liberty to authority. Because they can't conceive of the concept that people would organize peacefully and do the things that need to be done unless somebody made them do it. What it actually made me think of, it gave me a flash to a movie. Um, the Star Wars prequels. I think it was episode three as Anakin's building toward becoming Darth Vader. And he's, he's talking to, uh, to the princess, right? And, you know... They're beginning to conjure up their, their romance that's supposed to be forbidden and all. And they have this conversation. And there's something along the lines of, you know, the people should do this or should do that. And, and she says, but people don't just do what they're supposed to do. And you see the flash. And the, the actor, man, he's good. The guy that they picked to play young Anakin, man, really a good actor. Uh, as bad as some of those prequel movies were, he's a good actor. And the eyes that he gets in that, and he says, well, somebody should make them. And, of course, that's foreshadowing his turn to the dark side. I think that that is in most people. I want people to do what I want them to do so badly, I'm willing to make a deal with the dark side to get what I want. 
at the expense of liberty for everyone, including myself. And it's a huge mistake. Because most things that are useful that happen in the world happen without anybody imposing anything on anyone. If you go to a grocery store and just look at the way people shop, yeah, there's the occasional mouthy Karen who's in the middle of the aisle with the other mouthy Karen blocking all that. But pretty much people are able to function through a grocery store in a very organized way. The free market set up aisles and rows, and that's all that was really necessary for people to figure it out. People get up every day and choose what clothes they put on. They get up every day and choose what partner to be with or not to be with. People obey traffic laws more because it makes sense to not kill yourself in a car than because somebody might write them a ticket. People ignore the speed limit all the time, but they have a self-imposed limit. We actually can function in a society without government telling us exactly how we should do everything we should do. We don't need to be made to do things. We really don't. It is a lack of imagination and a lack of mental clarity that makes us sell out our freedom and liberty for supposed order, which is really just, well, it's controlled chaos. Because when you have a society where people's products of their labor are taken from them by, some, by an entity known as the state with a monopoly on force, And you don't think it's chaos? It just proves that they're indoctrination centers they call schools. Well, they're working. With that, on a better note, let's hear from Nicole Sauce right now about the last three seats remaining for her Living Free in Tennessee workshop. Hey, guys. Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee. And I wanted to talk to you about a workshop that we are putting on in Middle Tennessee, one hour east of Nashville, April 23rd through 25th. The topic is grow, as in grow yourself, grow your food, and grow your independence. We're having a lot of great hands-on sessions, including how to process food. So we're doing a fermentation, cheese-making, and canning day in the kitchen for folks interested in that. At the same time, Sean Mills is doing a solar hot water heater build. And then we're going to have great speakers on hand talking about how to grow yourself. One word at a time through changing your mindset, how to start taking those first steps if you want to launch a business, how to address hard things like PTSD. We got three guys at different phases on the journey who are going to talk really openly about how they're taking that on. That's all the personal development stuff. Then we have Nick Ferguson in talking about how to grow food, how to grow food for your animals more specifically. And we've got Brian Norton in talking about how to grow plants, how to grow food as well as growing his CBD business. And we have Mark Alexander going over how to go from homestead to side hustle. So sort of that getting the business started. Okay, then under Grow Your Independence, we fold in a lot of stuff. Some of it's more homesteading related things, such as beekeeping 101 or sessions on how to make a, a raised bed, things like that, but also... We have sessions oriented on you. So we do something called a project accelerator where you present your business idea or something you want to do at home to expand your food independence. Lots of different things can be presented. You present it for five minutes to the whole group. Then they give you their brainstorming feedback on how to make it stronger. So there are a lot of great opportunities. Patrick Rorman's going to be there to talk to us about how to treat our knives better, how to cut properly so you don't mess them up, and he's doing knife throwing because who else wouldn't want to do knife throwing, right? All of this is happening 
at the Living Free in Tennessee Homestead, the Holler Homestead, which is one hour east of Nashville. Tickets, $150 deposit, $450 total. That covers all your food for the whole time. You can arrive the night before. We'll have some food. That's April 22nd. Sessions start the 23rd and the 25th. And we we ask you to leave fairly early in the morning, you know, 10 a.m. or so, on Sunday the 26th. I can't wait for this year. We've got some great breakthrough stuff happening, including... The new session space has air conditioning and heating, which means when you're sitting in class, if it's cold out, you're warm. If it's hot out, you're cool. Of course, when we're doing the the work outside, you'll be subject to whatever the weather is. Would love to see you there. And here's the deal. We're almost sold out. I've got three tickets left. So jump on over at livingfreeintennessee.com and grab your ticket before we're sold out. Hope to see you there. Guys and gals, I can't recommend highly enough you consider getting on out to Nicole's place. I was there uh, last year. It's an amazing experience. She does a great job. It, the, the workshop bears a striking resemblance to another workshop. It's not really a coincidence. Uh, she's taken what we do here uh, at Nine Mile Farm, and she's made it her own in a very, very good way, and I think you really enjoy it. Now, one of the people that she said would be there uh, is Sean Mills, and Sean is an incredible resource we're so lucky to have uh, in the TSP community. He is going to be answering a question now on solar manufacturers. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I have an expert panel question from Matthew. Uh, this is question for Sean Mills. Any recommendation uh, recommendation on solar component manufacturers? With the cost of electricity where I am and the lowering cost of solar systems, I'm at the point where it looks like my payments on a six-year loan for a grid-tied solar system would be less than my monthly electricity payments in the summer. When I'm researching cost and panels on WholesaleSolar.com, there are several different manufacturers and options to choose from. Do you have any recommendations, recommendations or tips when evaluating them, or is it kind of a Chevy versus Ford kind of deal? Additional details if needed. Uh, he lives in northern Iowa. His summer electricity uh, cost is $0.18 cents per kilowatt hour, and in the winter it is $0.13 cents per kilowatt hour. He says he uses about 1,600 kilowatt hours in the middle of summer and about 1,000 kilowatt hours in the middle of winter. I'm assuming those are monthly values. Uh, looking at a 7.5 to 10 kilowatt grid-tied ground-mounted system, uh, we'll do DIY. He is a uh, mechanical engineer, and his father is a licensed electrician, so they're comfortable with the DIY aspect. I love that. Um, we'll listen to what you have on your site for things to keep in mind for installation. If you have time in your answer, do you have any thoughts on a grid-tie unit that would allow power uses direct from panels if grid power goes down? Thanks for your time, Matthew. Hey, Matthew, this sounds like a great project. Uh, I'm sure you know you are in the best spot in the U.S. for solar, uh, but all that means is that you need to oversize your system a little bit compared to someone that, for example, lives in Florida. Um, now, a 10KW system is not going to hit either your winter or your summer peak usage. Uh, I looked this up on the PV Watts website, put your area in and the size of your system and then took some uh, just general uh, uh, adjustments for dust and tilt and uh, azimuth and things like that. So this system is going to produce about 
13,486 kilowatt hours over the course of the year. Uh, in the in the summer, the system is going to produce about 1,500 kilowatt hours in a month. And in the winter, you're going to get between six and 700 in a month. So it's you know going to be somewhere, let's call it 70 to, to maybe 90% of your usage, which is still pretty good. Um, if we take an average of 15 cents per kilowatt hour over the course of the year, then that gives you an annual production uh, value of about $2,022 per year. Uh, so now as far as I can tell, Iowa still has net metering, but there are some political factions in the state that are going after net metering under the guise of eliminating cost shifting. Uh, there's been several states, and, and as of this year, Tennessee is one of them, uh, who have effectively killed uh, roof-mounted solar options by eliminating net metering uh, or whatever previous version they had in the state. Uh, now, our ass clown in chief has made some ignorant statements about all types of power, coal, nuclear, and renewable, but renewables are a pretty easy target, and rooftop solar is a, an especially easy target. You know, most people are afraid of electricity and electrical fires, and, and they're generally ignorant when it comes to electricity. So a person who doesn't have solar on their roof isn't necessarily going to call their state senator to attack a law that might impact their neighbor's ability to put solar on their roof. Now, I'll say all of that to say that you should be knowledgeable about the, about the potential changes to the program that could impact you in the near term, specifically over near that next six years. Uh, myself and, and several people I've been working with in Tennessee have been impacted by TVA's decision to eliminate the green power program in Tennessee completely uh, and then replace it with a horrible option that no one is interested in uh, that's going to prop up utility-scale solar and mostly eliminate distributed rooftop solar, which is exactly what they want to do. They want it, you know, they want their big money buddies uh, to put in, you know, the megawatt size uh, systems and, and get the, the tax credits and run that out for about seven years, um, sometimes even less, and then flip it to someone else who's going to do the same thing. So this has been happening in Tennessee, uh, but TVA has finally gone so far as to eliminate the program that was actually allowing rooftop solar uh, to be a decent option. So, uh, so just keep that in mind. Uh, now, from personal experience, I'd say you could do most of this work with yourself or with your father. Uh, a few notes to keep in mind, there is a new National Electrical Code for 2020, so you either need to get your system installed and, and uh, inspected and approved before your state adopts this new uh, NEC code, or you need to design to the new requirements. So that's one thing to keep in mind of. I'll give you an example. Um, and this actually wasn't related to 2020. It was just a design error on a system that I did. I had a DC disconnect at the array and a DC disconnect at the inverter inside the house. Uh, but the way the code was written, because my DC disconnect in the house wasn't right where the wires actually entered the house, I had to have another disconnect put in in between the first two uh, in order for someone to be able to disconnect the DC right where it enters the house. So, you know, that's an example of a cost that was required by code, doesn't really do anything, but I had to get that installed before I would pass inspection. Um, I love the idea of growing, going with the ground mount there in Iowa due to snow issues uh, and just easier to get in and, and work on. Um, I, now, in terms of, of using your energy off-grid, I love the Sunny Boy inverters. 
they have a grid down functionality. So this unit will allow you to utilize whatever the solar array is producing up to 2000 watts through an outlet that you wire directly to the inverter. So wherever your inverter is, you put an out outlet there. Um, and if the grid is down, you can still utilize if the array is producing 500 watts, you can get 500 watts out of it. If it's producing 2,500 watts, though, it, it limits you to that 2000 watts. That being said, you can run just about anything in the house on 2000 watts. Um, anything you would need to run at least. Uh, now, as for the panels, I'm of the belief that anything with a 25-plus year warranty on it is made well enough that I don't really need to worry about what the brand name is. But if you are getting a loan for this, you want to make sure you go with the new panel versus an old one because the idea is I would imagine that's going to be a requirement because this will be an asset-backed asset loan. Uh, I think this is a great idea. You know, if you could get this system in for less than $12,000, uh, and then you get that $2,000 a year over six years. You know, it sounds like a great plan and, and, and the system's going to be in place for you, you know, for 20 plus years. So, uh, I think it would be a great option with you being able to keep the cost down doing a lot of that work yourself. Um, so with that being said, thanks for the question, Matthew. Guys, keep them coming. I'll keep answering them. Again, this is Sean with HackMySolar.com for the expert council. Thanks. So. My only little addition here is that we're, in, we're entering this place with solar, and I think that a situation like you heard there with the relatively high rate of electrical costs, if it pays itself off, it pays itself off, right? Uh, so the higher the cost of electricity, the better solar looks right now. Um, I personally believe that by 2030, uh, you know, probably, and, and 2035 at the latest, the cheapest electricity in the world will be solar. That is the, without being ridiculous about exponential curves and like expecting them to be completely sustained, that is on the offside. So if we invest in solar today, we know that the cost of systems in the future is going to continue to come down. But we also know there's a life expectancy on those components and there's always the ability to expand. So I wouldn't hold up because of that, but I do think that you'll see solar get better every year, and I'd say even by, by 2025, in most markets, putting solar on your roof will be a financial decision that's in your own best interest. And, and I really think we're heading in that direction. Uh, and, and Sean did a great job, as he always does. Next up, you got John Pugliano with a few com combined things here, two of them being like complete opposites. we got a guy that makes a lot of money. And can pay all his bills, but just doesn't end up with any surplus money because he spends it all. And we got a guy that's doing so good at savings, he's maxed out all of his, you know, tax sheltered retirement and he's trying to figure out how do I save more money. And we've got some other stuff too. John, take it away. Hey, TSP, we have several financial questions. Let's see how many of these I can get through. The first one comes from Derek, and Derek is asking, what is a backdoor Roth? And then Derek goes on to say that he's contributing to his 401k plan at work but he's getting close to retirement. He wants to shelter more money in a tax-free account, but he makes too much money and he's over the income threshold to be able to contribute to a Roth. Well, Derek, I can't give you tax or financial advice. Let me just briefly explain to you what the term backdoor Roth means. And then, of course, you can consult with a financial professional and do some more research on your own before you ultimately make up your mind as to what you're going to do here. Let me remind everybody how a traditional IRA works. There are income limits as to whether or not your contribution to a traditional IRA can be deductible, 
but there are no income limits that prevent your ability to make a contribution. And so because of that language in the law, that creates a loophole in which you can make your after-tax contribution to your IRA and then immediately turn around and do a Roth conversion of that traditional IRA into your Roth account. Since you're making the contribution with after-tax dollars, and since you're immediately converting it to a Roth, there theoretically wouldn't be any tax consequences to the transaction. But here's the catch. This only works if your IRA balance is zero. And the reason for that is that the IRS calculates your capital gains on traditional IRAs by first money in, first money out. So if, for example, if you have an existing IRA and it has $100,000 in it that you've, you know, built up over the last 10 or 20 years of saving, well, you wouldn't be prohibited from doing the Roth conversion. But the problem is, is that the IRS is going to consider any money that's moved from the IRA to the Roth as being the original money that you first put in. And there would be a tax consequence with that because that money would have been put in with pre-tax dollars and also would have most likely earned a capital gain after all these years of investing. So any money that comes out of a Roth conversion that isn't done underneath this backdoor loophole is going to be taxed as ordinary income when it goes into the Roth. So Derek, definitely think through that, do some little more research on your own, and talk to a professional if you need some more clarification. The next question comes from Zach, and Zach is looking for the best app he can use on his iPhone to help him monitor stock fluctuations so that he can uh, begin trading. He's just starting to save. He's going to open up a retirement account, and he wants to start following the market more closely so that he can eventually become a good stock trader. Well, Zach, here's what I would do. I would take the simplest approach. You know, there are a lot of third-party apps I'm sure that you could get um, to track stocks and things. I think what determines what is the best really comes down to personal preference. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. Go ahead and pick whatever discount broker you're going to be opening your retirement account with. And then go ahead and open the account. And even if you're not ready to make the contribution into the account, that's okay. You can open an account without initially funding it. But once you get the account open, then your discount broker will have an app that's compatible with your iPhone. That's what I'd encourage you to download and then get used to using. And I would say virtually every discount broker has a pretty good app that allows you to enter in things like watch lists and different types of alerts, along with stock research and charting and all types of functionality. And then that way, if you start out using your broker's discount app, there won't be a learning curve. And once you really do start trading stocks, you'll still be on the same system. And our next question comes from MJ. And MJ actually has two questions. The first one is, how should someone go about selecting a local financial advisor that doesn't suck? Well, MJ, I'm not sure about the suck part, but let me just give you some broad advice that you can apply when you're looking for any type of service, you know, whether it's financial advice, legal advice, tax advice, or even if it's getting advice from a mechanic for your car or getting your HVAC system fixed for your house. The bottom line is whenever you're out there looking for service providers, you want to make sure of two critical things. You want them to be competent and honest. And you know, it's always buyer beware. So it's really up to you to have a basic understanding of what you need, you know, what kind of service you think you might need. You have to become at least a little bit familiar with that to be able to ask the right leading and probing questions to determine whether the service provider is competent. 
It's a little harder to tell if they're honest, and that's where a personal recommendation from someone that's already been using their service helps out. A big problem with that in the financial services industry is that the SEC prohibits investment advisors from using testimonial advertising. And so you're not going to be able to go online to a financial advisor's website and read all the happy testimonials from his clients because he's prohibited from doing that. So you're going to have to go out and ask your friends who they're using, if they like the service, and get an idea of what kind of history they've had with that person. But again, it really comes back to buyer beware, the responsibility is on you. Whenever you're dealing with any type of service provider, you really have to have your BS meter out there to verify that you're not being sold a bill of goods. So if someone's coming on to you with strong arm sales tactics, or they're trying to force you to sign a contract, or if they try and speed up the process and tell you how critical it is that you, you know, sign on the dotted line right now, or if they try and upsell you and start talking about life insurance or annuities or other types of products that you have no interest in or never even asked about, those are all warning signs that you're probably dealing with a financial liar and not a financial professional. Now, as far as the second part of MJ's question, he mentions that Jack is always talking about the importance of paying off debt, but he doesn't recall ever hearing a segment or an episode dedicated to that. And so he's asking about, you know, how do you go about tracking income versus spending and creating a budget? Well, MJ, you know, I don't remember if Jack specifically talked about that. I know him and I have had a lot of segments in general on that. We had a whole episode about building wealth, which is where we reviewed the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. And I'll let Jack chime in, but MJ, let me say this. And this kind of gets back to your first question about how do you find a good financial advisor? We well, you know there's really no magic or mystery to tracking your income and your spending and what your budget should be. Yeah, there's different techniques. You can use an app. You can use a spreadsheet. You can write it down on the back of an envelope. But the bottom line is, MJ, it's simple math. And if you're looking for some kind of a secret hack or a special way to do all this, I think you are going to be one of those people that gets taken advantage of by a financial liar because there's going to be plenty of financial coaches and people that call themselves all kinds of other things that will be happy to review your account and give you a budget and then, you know, charge you a big fee for it. But MJ, the bottom line is you have to have the discipline and be an adult and take responsibility for how much money you're making and how much money you're spending. And that takes us into a transition to our final question. And I'm not going to mention the guy's name, but he's a doctor. And he says that he needs help because he knows how to make money, but he has a hard time managing it. And he says he's worried about retirement and getting his debts paid down. Well, Doc, you should be because you are a high income earner, but the amount of money that you say that you have in your 401k plan is extremely inadequate. Now, you didn't tell me your age, so... You know, if you're right out of med school, maybe I can see the balance you have. But the bottom line is, you don't even have enough saved up to make a decent emergency fund. And I know you're burdened with a lot of student loan debt, but Doc, the bottom line is, you're making a whole lot more money than the average guy. And although you know how to make money, you know, in your statement, you say you have a hard time managing it. And I'm going to tell you, no, you don't. You don't have a hard time managing your money. You're having a hard time managing yourself. Yeah, you could find some financial advisor that's going to charge you a lot of money and put together a plan for you, or you could go to some life coach. But you know, the bottom line, Doc, is the problem rests with you. 
but I'm going to save you a lot of money and sum it all up. And I'm going to give you the big boy answer because the problem isn't you can't manage money. The problem is you spend too much damn money. My friend, that's the problem. But the good news is you can fix it. In fact, you're the only one that can fix it. So buck up, be a man, take responsibility and go do it. Well, hey, I know that's not the kind of answers you want to hear, but that's the truth. So thanks for your questions. This is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Next up, our vet on staff, Doc Kelly, with a question. It's really a great question. I've stated over and over again that I am not worried at all about going out, shooting a deer, coming home, cooking it up, and getting CWD, chronic wasting disease, that there has been enough deer infected with it for long enough that if it was something that humans got, we'd have a human case of it by now, and we don't. I've also stated that this this concept of, well, that's why I make sure that I cook my deer meat well done. It's just ruining good meat for no good reason because the prions that cause this disease require some temperature north of 500 degrees to destroy. That's why it's such a dangerous thing um, when we look at, like, mad cow disease, which does have animal-to-human transmission possibilities. But what about dogs? Because dogs find a dead animal, they just tear into it. In fact, that's what this guy's dog is doing, finding dead deer and tearing into them. Now, I will tell you that I think the majority of times, especially, you know, this question came in a little while ago. It took Kelly a while to get off her backlog. Um, you do, Dogs come home with feet and stuff like that, and a lot of times those deer were deer that were shot by hunters, and you live out in the country or whatever, people just throw the hooves and the legs and stuff like that, the, the waste just in the woods and let nature take care of it. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of roadkill this time of year, especially a few months ago coming up till now, uh, that is another way that a lot of these deer end up dead. They're not just falling over and dying. So that's one thing that mitigates this. But, I, you know, I feel, I feel real confident that you're not going to shoot a deer, eat it, and get, get, you know, some deer form of mad cow disease. I really don't know how it affects canines, or if it does at all. My gut is it doesn't. Kelly, what say you? Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question is as follows. Hey, Jack, the other day you talked about people not being likely to be able to contract chronic wasting disease, but what about dogs? We have had a number of dead deer in the area before hunting season. We know because the dogs keep turning up with body parts. I've seen one of them, and the only obvious symptom was the fact that it couldn't fog a mirror. Are there any concerns with a dog getting into a deer with CWD? Thanks, Tactical. So there have been no cases that were suspicious of CWD in dogs, and it's unlikely that it would occur as dogs appear to be resistant to cross-species prion transmission. This was looked at fairly extensively during the bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease, outbreak in the U.K., Interestingly, cats were found to have a BSE-like disease that showed up in both domestic cats and big cats in zoos. So I might actually be a little more cautious of throwing some of that deer um, material to the cats or letting them get into it if your barn cats happen to or something. Now, all this being said, the lack of dogs showing infection is what's considered a negative result, which just means we have no cases or proof yet. Will we ever... 
It's probably not super likely based on the evidence with the BSE, but it's still considered an open case. Um, not included in the question, but something to consider from a human health standpoint. It's also less likely for dogs to get tuberculosis from eating raw infected deer as opposed to cats or humans. There have been a few cases, confirmed cases of TB in humans in certain counties in Michigan, and I believe one case in like Indiana due to slaughtering deer. These occurred both through inhalation of it and possibly through open sores on the hand. Now, although the risk is low, especially unless you're in an area that is endemic for TB, it still might be something worth considering if you're in those particular places for humans as far as taking precautions with gloves and a mask if you're hunting in one of those TB endemic areas like Michigan. Thanks for your question. And remember all, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian. So my advice is just to give you a ballpark estimate of what your vet may tell you. Thanks, Jack, and hope everyone has a great weekend. Bye. Okay, that's pretty much what I expected. Uh, good information, though, on the, the potential for tuberculosis. Uh, next, uh, uh, Jeff Lawton on a surplus problem. Surplus of paper, in this case, rolls that are really designed for newsprint, but I guess newspapers ain't getting printed much anymore or something. This guy's got a buttload of it. Jeff, what do we do with it? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And we have a question coming in from uh, a listener who has um, rolls and rolls of um, unused printing paper from uh, printing press that prints newspapers. Um, they're not, uh, there's no ink on it, it's just plain paper. And there's also uh, quite a lot of uh, shredded paper. Now, all of this can be used um, for growing as a sheep mulch, uh, especially around trees. And um, you, can, um, you can make it very thick. I mean, you can make it 50 sheets of paper thick easily or more. Um, and it will really restrict uh, weed growth, but you have to mulch thickly on top of it. When I say thickly, I mean six to eight inches minimum. It could be a foot or even two foot thick of mulch on top of the paper. The big problem with paper is people don't get it wet enough, and the reason they don't get it wet enough is they don't put thick enough mulch on top of it. You need to have enough mulch that when you get it wet, it stays wet, and the paper stays wet underneath or at least damp. So those great ways to grow trees quickly by mulch with the paper acting as sheet mulch or in gardens. Um, and usually it's only to start new gardens off, but you can start new gardens where you might have some persistent weeds. Um, like I say, put it down thick. Put it down really, really thick. Um, and, and so you could have a 100 sheets of new, newspaper thick. Just fold it and fold it and fold it and fold it paper your garden and overlap it like crazy. I mean, you know, it needs to be as thick as a sun, Sunday newspaper, you know, um, to really have a good effect. Um, I used to put down uh, one ton of newspaper over 200 square metres, uh, whatever that is in square feet. Um, and um, that's nice and thick uh, for urban gardening when you're laying down permaculture landscaping, as I used to do in urban areas. And um, the thickness of straw that I put down is a standard small bale. Um, and um, one bale of straw would do 1.3 square metres, which makes it pretty thick. I just tear off biscuits about six to eight inches thick of straw. And, and you know, without tearing the, the straw bale biscuit apart, just layer it really thick. And then the big thing is get it really, really wet to start off with. Then it only needs a little bit of water in to keep uh, the moisture content up and plants and trees grow like crazy out of that stuff. 
Um, you just put a little pocket of compost in there when you plant an event and off it goes. You've done a crude imitation of a forest floor. And, and the sheet mulch of the paper um, just cuts out all the light and cuts out all the weed germination long enough to get everything up and running and getting away from the weeds. And you're in, you, you, you've disadvantaged the weeds so much if you planted the right plants and kept the water up to it, used the right sort of compost in the planting holes. Your garden gets away, your trees get away, and it all runs a lot better. Now, the other thing you could do is you could build with that stuff. I mean, you, like straw bale walls, you could have like, um, you could have, um, newspaper roll walls, um, and, and you could lay them sideways across a wall. I imagine they're about four foot, um, long, and that gives you a really wide wall, but it makes it super insulated, and you could definitely render it. Um, you could rip it apart and add, add it like a bailed up paper, shredded paper bale. Um, I live, I'm talking to you from a straw bale kitchen, um, dining room and it's all wheat straw, but my house is partly wheat straw bales, um, partly sugarcane straw bales, partly rice straw bales. Um, and, um, it's also bamboo wall. Um, where we've made thick bamboo walls um, by weaving split bamboo together and then rendering it just the same. But these well-insulated um, systems have um, incredible insulation and no thermal mass, so they don't hold heat. Paper's kind of similar. So if you, if you made paper bales, old clothes bales, even plastic bag bales would actually be quite insulated and you wouldn't know what, you don't know what it is when it's underneath the, uh, um, cob and then mud, uh, chaff render and lime plaster. And it all looks the same on the, uh, from the outside. So there would be some sort of funky building systems you could do with those, uh, what, uh, they're called butt end rolls apparently. Um, um, not quite big enough to put through the printing press. Um, and more or less thrown away. So there's definitely some creative building you could do with those things, but there's definitely great things you can do to uh, make growing easier. Uh, just cover it all up with mulch. So cover it up with thick mulch. It'll work great. I, I just real, really want to reiterate, paper, cardboard, anything like that you use in a situation, how important it is to do what Jeff said and get it very, very wet, soaking wet, sopping wet, to the point where you can kind of push your finger through it so wet. And with newsprint especially, this is why that is so important. If it dries out, and it can have the exact opposite effect that you're looking for. Instead of holding moisture in and allowing moisture to pass through and sop into the earth, it can form like a, because you ain't talking about using it as a building material, yeah, it can form almost like a paper mache wall. And I've seen people kill plants doing this by not going thick enough and not getting wet enough at the beginning and not keeping it irrigated. We're completely dried out, and they're, but look at all this beautiful mulch, and they pull it back. And it's bone dry, and it's even rained recently. So that's just something to be aware of. Wet means wet, sopping wet. When we've done cardboard here, we've taken big kiddie pools, and we've literally soaked the cardboard in the kiddie pools. And as it becomes hard, to the point where if it's any more wet, if we pick it up, it's going to fall apart. That's as we lay it down. And that way you also get good ground to contact when you're using cardboard. Uh, next up, uh, Patrick Rorman on the differences between an oil stone and a wet stone for sharpening. 
Hey guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week's question comes from Jeff Montalta. He says, I have a few sharpening stones. How do I know if I should use water or oil on them? Hey, thanks for the question, Jeff. Most Most sharpening stones are oil stones. Technically, you could use either. Um, you're just not going to get the best results using water on an oil stone or oil on a water stone. And actually using oil on a water stone would actually uh, could ruin the stone. So most water stones come from Japan, some from China. Um, you'll know if they typically will absorb water. There are some water stones that are splash and go, what they call and um, they're not going to absorb water quite like um, your coarser grits, and they're typically your your finer grits. But if you uh, sharpening is really basic, you could even take a rock from outside and use it for sharpening. You're not going to get the speed of cutting that you would from what they typically use for sharpening stones. And you're probably not going to get um, as fine or consistent of a grit. But if you have a stone, um, any of the old stones, typically if you can tell that they were oil stones by, uh, you know, if they have an oil residue on them. So I think, I hope that answers your question. If you uh, want to send me some pictures of the stones and you're not sure, go ahead and do that. Patrick at mtknives.net. Thank you for your question. Have a great day. Next up, Steve Wise with a couple questions involving things like the Second Amendment movement and resistance movement in Virginia and where things like that might be going. Good evening, Jack and TSP listeners. This this is Steve Wise, your retired law enforcement officer, answering your your law enforcement-related questions, remember that laws change and, and vary from state to state, so please check with your local attorneys uh, for any legal advice. So this time we had two questions related to Virginia, and they came in back uh, before all this stuff really got interesting, and uh, I'm sorry uh, I missed those questions in my mailbox. Um, but if I went into a lot of detail, this could be an hour-long show, and I'm limited, so uh, but let's let's see what the questions are. Uh, Tom asks us, uh, um, "What are your thoughts on Virginia?" After your hint, it's probably got flooded with all these emails. So Jack apparently asked that. Uh, I have been contemplating asking you uh, your opinion on Virginia for some time. To be honest, I kind of filled uh, filed this under the heading of "It's not going to affect the temperature of my pool." Uh, I think this will eventually get all worked out in the courts and no one is actually going to go into the hills or backwoods of Virginia to knock on doors and confiscate weapons. Just don't see this happening. I do love the overall response through the local sheriffs and counties, though. The question is, would they actually hold firm? I think Virginia, they will. And then there was a second question from Paul, kind of on the same uh, bent. It's uh, based on your law enforcement experience. What do you expect the reaction of Virginia State and uh, the county law enforcement will be to uh, if they're asked to enforce the proposed gun control laws, especially given the widespread Second Amendment sanctuary city and county movement? Additionally, if you 
would expect different reactions from law enforcement in rural and suburban or urban areas, please provide some details. All right, so while I'm late in responding this, um, uh, you know, there's been some major wins uh, for the people of Virginia. And uh, while I still believe the existing gun laws in Virginia are an overreach, uh, they've got some rather interesting ones. I also believe the Democrats will continue to push gun control. So this means we are not out of the woods by any means. Uh, based on my experience in law enforcement, I feel the average officer just won't do anything to enforce any of these gun laws. Um, what would happen is they would use these laws as add-ons to an existing case. Uh, this is an example of what I mean. Uh, let's say they were called to a domestic abuse case and there was a firearm present and this firearm, for whatever reason, violated one of these new laws. Um, I would ex- not expect the law enforcement officer to uh, to ignore that gun. I would expect him to f- make the domestic violence case. I would ex- expect them to add the uh, weapons uh, charge onto it and um, and then send it off to the courts. I would not expect law enforcement officers to start going door to door, asking questions and trying to find weapons that they are now quote unquote classified as illegal. Much in the same way, um, uh, the quote unquote bump stack, bump stock ban has been uh, enforced. Well, it, it really hasn't resulted in any enforcement for federal law enforcement. They're not showing up at doors of people that previously purchased the stocks to try to get them um, confiscated. There's just there's no appetite to do that type of thing. Um, From the few cases that will be brought to the courts, um, you know, the, the goal will be to try to get them into the appeals court. The state of Virginia prosecutors will pull out all sorts of tricks to try to prevent a case moving forward that could be appealed based on these gun laws. So let's go back to my domestic abuse cases, just kind of an example. Let's say this goes to the courts and the guy is found guilty and the, the prosecutors will have the ability to, um, to plea bargain or make other, um, plea recommendations uh, or, um, uh, sentencing guidelines or sentencing recommendations. So, for example, let's say you would get 10 years for the domestic violence normally and 10 years for the weapon charge. Uh, they could plea bargain that down to just 10 years on domestic violence and drop the weapon charge. Now, if you go to court to appeal your conviction, well, their weapon charge isn't there anymore. You can't appeal it. Um, or they could turn around and just drop the weapon charge completely and bump the sentence recommendation up to 20 years on domestic violence. It's another way they can get around it. There's a lot of little tricks the prosecutors can play. They're going to do everything they can to keep a weapons case out of the courts to where it could be appealed. And, of course, there's other ways of getting a case up in front of an appellate court, but you know this is the most practical way that, that it's going to happen. All right, so let's go back to how individual officers will respond. If you're going to survey officers across the United States about their general beliefs and their beliefs in guns and their beliefs in just about anything, you're going to find that it mirrors the general population. That's that's why, you know, there's good cops, there's bad cops, there's good people, bad people. It's we're general population people. It just happens to be that we get to put a badge and a gun on and, and carry it every day. You're going to have officers that are pro-Second Amendment. You're going to have officers that oppose the Second Amendment. Um, so it's just 
equal as, as whatever the local population is. So if you live in a county that's uh, pro-Second Amendment and you've got 80% of the people who are pro-Second Amendment, you're probably going to have 80% of the police officers who are pro-Second Amendment. So what happens then if the gun control measures are pushed through and we get these new gun laws? Uh, there's going to be some officers that will go out looking for these violations, and there's some that won't. Uh, think about it. Uh, we used to call them traffic Nazis, the officers that just went out there and did speed enforcement or traffic law violations, other ones for, uh, focused on drug crimes. Officers will do these things because that's what they're called and or what they feel that they're called to do, uh, what they feel best about. They'll focus on those areas, but it won't be everybody. And especially when it comes to gun laws, it's going to be a big different. Uh, it's going to be a big uh, change for them. Um I would expect police departments in your major cities uh, to use their plainclothes detectives to put together a uh, gun uh, enforcement unit of some sort. Um, I've heard them called gun units and stuff like that in different departments, and they already exist today going out looking for whatever the current gun law violations might be. So, But your big departments can do that, and um, so, you know, what will happen is, let's say there's a gunfire report or something, and one of your neighbors says, hey, uh, I hear my neighbor going down in the woods and shooting his gun, and uh, they're mis- uh, and they report it to the police. Well, those type complaints are going to all focus and end up in this detective squad, and then they're going to try to track that location down and see if they can do something. They might even try to deploy more gun uh, tracking software and to be able to triangulate gunfire. Police departments are already doing this in the United States, and I think Chicago, they're using that to try to triangulate where gunfire is coming from so they can get to the scene of, a, of an incident sooner. So you might see this being deployed in your bigger cities. It's not going to happen in the smaller jurisdictions. They don't have the money. They don't have the manpower. Um, so, you know, if your neighbors around you don't like uh, what you're doing, you know, so get to know your neighbors. Figure out what's going on there. Um, I could also see um, a state patrol unit being organized uh, to go across the borders um, to wherever the closest gun ranges are and start looking for out-of-state out license plates and uh, start looking for those Virginia plates showing up in West Virginia and uh, writing down plate numbers. And then um, maybe having some uh, plainclothes officers involved in that type of a sting. Uh, so kind of keep that in mind. Uh, but the average officer's not going to be doing it. Um, if it's not part of this organized detective unit, you're probably not going to see it. Um, you, these organized units will do stings like uh, pretty similar to what they do today on prostitution stings. They'll set up something and and try to get you lured into you know either buying an illegal gun or or maybe you're down on your luck and you're trying to sell your gun. They're going to offer to buy it, and uh, then you're pretty soon you find yourself in the middle of a sting. Uh, and going back to this idea of door to door, it just won't work. I mean, there aren't enough law enforcement officers in the state to try to physically take weapons from everybody. Um, you know, there's been some. Um, I heard a person do some quick calculations once on, you know, hey, if you sent officers out and and only a certain number of officers died, you know, you did a hundred raids and one officer died for each raid, how many how many raids it would take before there were no law enforcement officers left in the state? I mean, you, you, not that we're predicting that would actually happen, but there's just not enough police officers, and if stuff 
bad stuff starts happening, people are going to start losing, leaving the job. So Democrats play long games. They don't, they're not going to try to force the issue. They're going to look for other tricks to try to get these uh, weapons and collect them in opportunities uh, that uh, make it safer. The idea of going and seeing a gun range across state borders, you leave your gun range, you're driving back into the state of Virginia, the state troopers waiting for you on the other side of the border to pull you over, say, hey, you just left a gun range in the state of West Virginia, and we're here to confiscate your weapons. And, um, you know, they're going to put the, the situation back on uh, where they have the advantage. Um, here's another one. You know, how many of us have a will? And we might mention our guns in a will. And then the attorneys that are acting as the exec- executors of the state could be compelled to report any wills that have weapons in them that might violate the current laws, and they would be required to do so. So, you know, just other ways that they could be doing this. Um, we already talked about uh, staking out uh, the gun ranges and doing these these other little methods that they'll come up with. There, there'll be hundreds of them. And, uh, you know, there's just no way I can think of them. But they're going to play the long game. They're going to take weapons a little bit at a time where they can feel safe doing it or put it on the uh, to their advantage. Um, nobody has the... Um, the desire to have a Ruby Ridge. Nobody has the, um, the desire to have a Waco, Texas situation, Branch Davidian compound, uh, for, for that one. Nobody has those in their minds. So, uh, those situations are going to be unlikely. So in the meantime, if you are planning on doing the, um, I lost my guns in a boating accident, you might want to come up with a better excuse because um, that's going to lead to questions like, well, which lake or river were you fishing on? Oh, you were in the ocean? Well, if you take that one, um, you might want to make sure that you were actually on an ocean visit. visit. And um, if you say a river or a lake, well, and they're really after you, they might actually go diving for them. So let's come up with better excuses if you're going to do something to to hide your weapons or get them out of the state or uh, and just stay in compliance with the laws. Um, use the courts um, and just be smart about this. Things are gone well here in the last couple of days, but I don't expect it to last. I think that we're going to see California, New Jersey, Illinois state type gun laws applied to Virginia and, uh, they're already holding up in those states. And I just, I see it coming down that road and, uh, it's going to be a, a long, long process. Back to you, Jack. Sorry for going a little long. So I by and large agree with Steve there. It also shows me a place where cops that think they're the good guys aren't. Um, his example of, well, I get called out on domestic violence and I find a gun in the house and I'm going to do the guy up on a gun charge. And he would expect that they would do that. Well, I can tell you that I've had police come to my house before on what they suspected as a domestic, and Dorothy and I have never had an issue like that. But I threw some people off my property who didn't want to leave. So I was yelling at them. And these were a couple, you know, the kids doing the whole they're selling magazine things, but then they refused to leave my property and started making gang signs and stuff like that. So I was very authoritative with telling them to get off my property before they got their ass shot. And they did leave. Well, one of the neighbors heard this but didn't see what was going on, called the police. The police show up. 
interview me and my wife. Now, in this case, they did not come into the home. We were, we both refused to let us, let them into the home. Uh, they separated us, which is standard procedure. And they asked my wife, my wife's like, no. And I'm like, no. And I, I told, I told the officer legitimately exactly what happened, who these people were, the direction they went down the street, and that they were, they were being obnoxious when told no. And they were being threatening when told no. And to their credit, they went and I saw them and the way to go home, back to where they would be because there's no outlet on that side of the neighborhood would have been to make a right and they made a left. So as far as I know, they went and found these young punks and they went and told them to, to knock it off and get out of there. So that all went well. Well, let's just take this a little bit differently. Let's say we had been having an argument and let's say that Dorothy and I had not had these kinds of conversations before about what not to let cops do. But we weren't really having a real problem. Maybe we just had a shouting match. Police come in the house, and they happen to notice something that indicates there might be firearms in the house. They ask her, and she has no idea that anything is potentially illegal, because maybe you've passed one of these laws that you know what used to be legal is no longer legal because it has a pistol grip on it. Cops go upstairs, because she says it's okay as a homeowner, she can. I'm outside in the front lawn explaining that, hey, we just yelled at each other, there was no problem here, and my wife says there's no problem, and they say, I'm going to, 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 to prison on a firearms charge. The cop that does that is an oath-breaking piece of shit, okay? You're an oath-breaking piece of shit, because there was no call for that. Now, if you get there, and some guy has beat his wife to a pulp, He's an abusive asshole, and you know, in spite of that, he's probably going to be free and beating her ass again in a day. I still don't think you should do it, but I at least understand why you did. You either think the law is just, or you think the law is unjust. And you're either willing to enforce it or you're not. So that's my feeling on that. Otherwise, I completely agree with Steve, though his faith in police might be a little higher than mine. And you might not think that's the case after I read what I'm about to read to you. And what I want to explain, too, with some of the things he said you might think I disagree with because I'm talking about actual seizure of guns and weapons here. He's saying he doesn't think that's likely. I also don't think it's likely. But it is being threatened, and that's what I was responding to in this. And what prompted this is the mainstream media is now on this term boogaloo. And the boogaloo is you know named after the old dance from the 70s, the boogaloo. And they don't have any idea what they're talking about. People just think they're lying. I wish they were just lying. Because then at least they would know what they're messing with here. They don't. They actually think if they get laws passed to ban all these weapons that everybody's going to turn them in and the few that don't, the cops are just going to go get them and throw them in jail and everything's going to be okay. They really think that's the case. The, the, the thing that Steve's talking about is it probably will be the case 25, 30 years from now. Maybe, maybe a little longer. Because our children are being programmed to accept the complete and total authority of the state. And young people in general are not owning guns at the rate that kind of middle-aged and old people are. As much as we're trying to hand them down, more and more young people are afraid of guns. They're being taught to be afraid of guns. They don't want anything to do with guns. So I think that the long game is to get people to just voluntarily say, we don't want guns anymore. And in a democracy, which we live in, whether you want to accept it or not, And in our democracy, when you get two-thirds of the population thinking that way, you can amend a constitution. In our democratic, representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic, there's the republic word for you guys that think that's magic. By the way, North Korea is a republic. Egypt is a republic. 
I think Yemen is a republic. The former Soviet Union, republic. There's over a hundred nations that are republics. Republics are not magical. We are a democracy with a republican form of government that has checks on democracy. But we're still a democracy. To say we're not a democracy is to say that uh, an aquaponic system doesn't have water in it because it has plants in it. It's just, it's just nonsense. Anyway, they wrote this article called, and this is the title of it, What is the Boogaloo? How Online Calls for a Violent op uh, Uprising Are Hitting the Mainstream. I'm going to read uh, pretty much verbatim my response to it that I wrote on Facebook with a few add-ins, and, and here's what it was. Once again, the mainstream media, in this case, the retards at NBC News, demonstrate that they have zero understanding of the news they report and zero understanding of the liberty movement and the counterculture it represents. Listen up, morons. The boogaloo is not a call for an uprising. It is a warning that you idiots are pushing us into a civil war. Armed Americans are not planning an uprising. We are planning to resist when you send your thugs to take away our property. It is that simple. Our guns are not just tools. Many of them belong to our fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers. Some of these men fought world wars, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Many of us are more current veterans. We have guns that we are carrying that are from our grandparents, and those will represent six generations when we give them to a grandchild someday. You can't expect to mess with something like that without being resisted. We have our current guns as well that we bought new, but as we age, we realize they are becoming granddaddy's guns of their own, also destined to be hand down someday, and we are not willing to give them up just because they happen to be semi-automatic. The term boogaloo is not about a violent uprising. It is a warning that if you attempt to use violence upon us, we will resist you. You are like a naked moron with a pole poking a hornet's nest. The hornets don't want to come out. They are buzzing loudly. That is what boogaloo is. It is the hornet saying, leave us the F alone. Sadly, the naked morons are saying, hey, listen to that angry buzzing. They are threatening us, and they are continuing to poke the nest. You idiots are messing with something you can't even understand. There are 55 million gun owners in America. We have hundreds of millions of guns and billions of rounds of ammunition. If we were the problem, you'd know it by now. Some of your thugs will attempt to disarm us if they are ordered to do so. But you should know that likely half of law enforcement stands with us. Well over half the military... And out of the Army and the Marine Corps, the number's probably more like 80%, especially the guys that use guns there for a living. The boogaloo is not a threat to do violence. It is a warning that we will, one, respond to violence with violence. Two, if forced into violence, we are better at it than you are. Three, we are the ones who have the guns. Four, Many of your thugs you expect to do your violence by proxy are actually with us. It is the left and the media clamoring for a war here. And in such a total, in such total ignorance, they don't even realize that's what they're asking for. If you ever break open the nest and find yourself stung by 50 million hornets, you have only yourselves to blame. The hornet's buzz is a warning and a promise. 
It is not a threat. The boogaloo is a plea from us. It is us saying, please wake up and leave us alone before you push us too far. We are the peaceful ones here. We are not the ones threatening to kick in doors, steal property, and imprison people who have harmed no one. And I want to expand that. That's the article. It's on Facebook. I'll link to it so you can share it if you want to. And if you want to share it to people not on Facebook, I have a public Facebook, so it's like any other web page. You can send a link. But I want to expand on this. While I was pretty angry when I wrote that, because when I read this article, I'll link to the article too, it's such tripe. And I want to, well, actually, before I say this, I want to address something. Some people responded to that and said, you're giving them too much credit. They know what they're doing. They're lying. They're trying to make this happen. No, they don't. No, they don't. And I'll tell you why they don't. I'll tell you why they don't. Because they don't, how would they? How would they understand this? They don't talk to you and me. Have any of these people ever said to you, hey, explain your position to me? No, they yell at you that you're the problem. They blame you for a school shooting you had nothing to do with. They do not talk to gun owners. And when they do, they find the one or two total crazies to talk to to make their point, And then they assign that craziness to all of us. And then they also believe their own bullshit when they say, even the NRA supports this gun control. They have no idea who we are. They live on the East Coast and the West Coast. They work in giant buildings, and they never talk to gun owners. They don't know anything about us. They have no idea that people like me exist that have an old Browning semi-auto shotgun that would fall under many of their gun bans, even though it's not a tactical weapon or whatever because it's semi-auto, that belong to my grandfather that I plan to put in the hands of my grandson someday And that when I know when that moment comes when he's ready and my hand leaves that gun and his hand takes it, that six generations go. They don't know that. They don't understand that. They don't get that. It does not compute in their minds. They also don't believe in anything purely from their souls. They don't believe in anything to the point. I know you're thinking they believe in something. Yes, they do. They don't believe in something to the point where they're willing to sacrifice their lives for it. So they can't understand somebody that does. They don't know who we are. They don't know what we're about. They haven't listened to us. And that brings me to my other analogy here instead of a hornet's nest. We are really more like bees. Because hornets, if you poke the nest twice, they will jack your shit up, and you know it. Bees are a lot more peaceful. So I want you to see a place of 50 beehives. Each beehive has about a million bees in it. That's a big beehive. bigger than. But just, it's an analogy, right? Each one of those beehives represents the state, the 50 states of the United States of America. Now, understand that some beehives then would have like a half a million bees, and the other ones would have like two million bees, because gun ownership varies. But in the end, we're just going to average it out. million bees and 50 beehives, 50 million bees. And if you are the moron that goes and starts messing with a beehive that, let's say, is Virginia, and you start poking and prodding around it, threatening to tear that beehive apart and seize the property of the bees inside the hive. But you're not actually in the hive yet. The first thing the bees do is they send out guard bees. And the guard bees start flying around in your ear. Like that. They don't touch you. They don't land on you. They're not even that aggressive. They're just basically saying, hey, we're here. That's our hive. Something about you's not right. You, you, you don't look like a beekeeper. You don't look like you belong here. You smell wrong. You're moving wrong. Something tells us you're a threat, and we're warning you to get away. That has been the Second Amendment movement for the past 30 years. 
That's attempts to educate people that don't want to be educated. That's articles. That's outreach programs. That's, hey, shall not be infringed. That's all the, that's joining the NRA and other pro-Second Amendment groups. That's filing lawsuits. Those are the initial guard bees. Now, if you're an idiot and you keep advancing on those guard bees and they get a little louder in your ears and you don't back off, then those guard bees start to actually engage. They don't sting right away, though. They'll actually, beekeepers call it headbutting. They'll hit you. I've had my bees, as they got a little hot one time with a, a queen problem, do this. You're, you're all of a sudden, you're over there, and they're not stinging you, but they're flying out, and they hit you in the face. They know your face is a weakness. It's like somebody reaching out and poking you in the head, saying, hey, Skippy, hey, hey, McFly, right? Wake up. That's the Second Amendment protests in Virginia where these guys are armed up. That's the term boogaloo. You've gotten so close to the hive here that we're now touching you. We're now the advance guard saying, hey, wake up. If you pull the roof off of that hive, there's 50 million bees waiting to come out of there. And we don't want this to happen. They don't want this to happen. But if you do it, it's going to happen. They're not going to let you do this. And there's a point at which if, they, if you go hard enough into that hive, bees start coming out of the adjacent hives and bringing bees out of the other hives, and all of a sudden there's 50 million bees in the air. Now, the only reason these morons are willing to do this is they're not going to be the ones to go to the hive. They're, they're egging this on because they don't know what they're dealing with, and they have a whole bunch of people that are wearing apparent bee suits and bee veils walking toward the hives on their behalf. What they don't understand is what Steve was talking about. If you go too far with this and you start tearing the beehive apart. There's a whole bunch of those guys wearing bee suits that are not okay with this. That will look at the guy in the bee suit next to them, grab their veil, pull it off of their head, pull their pants down, smack them in the ass, and then beat on the beehive and run. And leave them there. And there's some that will walk over and join the bees. This is what you're messing with. Boogaloo is, hey, enough. And again, any assertion that the Second Amendment pro-individual is the violent person requires a, a depth of ignorance that is impressive to say the least. Why am I violent? Because I have a gun? Well, then doesn't that make all of your, all of your cops violent, every single one of them? Doesn't that make every single person that has a gun, whether they have a badge or a uniform or not, violent? If the gun alone makes me violent? No? So then the gun can't make me violent by itself. So now you got two people with a gun. One guy says, this is my home. I live here. This gun is my property. All this other shit's my property. That's my property line. That's my door. I'm not bothering you. But if you come here with your gun to take my property, harm my family, I will use violence against you. And the other one says, okay, I'll do that. Now who's violent? The only reason that the average American can't understand this is they've been indoctrinated by a system designed to program them that the state is always right. Right now they can't do this. But they may be stupid enough to try it in Virginia. And the things Steve laid out are the most likely scenario, but there is a scenario that results in the beehive roof coming off and the bees coming out. And that might be something like a particular Second Amendment pro-sheriff says, not in my county.
We're sanctuary county. I ain't doing it. And some governor decides that he's more important than that, and he won't be told what to do, and he sends people out not to raid the people, but to arrest the sheriff. And something like an Oath Keepers group comes up and says, you're not arresting our sheriff today. And it creates a showdown. Something that makes, you know, what happened with the Bundy uh, situation look like a day at Disneyland. And it turns hot. And where's it go from there? Who knows? Don't know. But Boogaloo is not a threat of violence. It's a warning that you're asking for violence. It's a warning that you're infringing. It is the hornets, we're back to the hornets, buzzing at the naked moron with the pole. Stop what you're doing. Because if you don't, you're going to get stung. And while the bee analogy is a better analogy, because of the way that we conducted ourselves over the last 30 years of fighting this battle, much more reserved than hornets, I want to tell you something about these bees in this imaginary story, in those beehives. They might be honeybees that sting once and go away, that are not that aggressive. But once you pull the roof off the hive and start going through the comb, those bees, like some kind of magic from an anime show, morph into red hornets. That's what you're messing with. And God, I wish you people on that side of the debate would educate yourselves so that at least if you're going to go down this path, you understand that you are the ones proposing violence and you understand the force you're playing with. You're like somebody ticking around with an atom bomb that doesn't know what it is. If you think anything I'm saying is over the top here, again, you're proof that our indoctrination system they call an education works and gives them what they want. Nothing I have said today is extreme. Nothing I've said today is a call for violence. Everything I've said is a plea to avoid violence. But what would you do if someone came to your home to take your property and do you harm? A lot of you would lay down and let it happen. That doesn't mean we're wrong for not laying down and not letting it happen. I have every right to defend my home, my property, and my family from anyone that would do me harm, regardless of what clothes they wear or what title they have or how many of you said it's okay for them to hurt me. God, I hope this gets through to somebody, just one person on the left. I would love for somebody from you know MSNBC or CNN to reach out and have a nice calm discussion with me about this and interview me so that you might understand that which you are doing. I expect to be let down. I don't expect it to happen. Anyway, we've wrapped things up yet again. want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today are bulkheads from a company called Lifeguard Aquatics. And these are awesome. They're not as good as the banjo bulkheads that I've recommended in the past, quality-wise. But they're almost as good. I have a video with the write-up today that explains the difference. And they have some advantages over that, too. And I will use them for most things going forward. There are some few things I will reserve the banjos for, but they cost about 25% of what the banjos cost. That's a big savings when you're using quite a few bulkheads. Uh, in a system where you're using, let's say, 10 bulkheads, that's 50 bucks. That's, that's not chump change. 
Um, they're, they're a great product. Uh, I have links to them from half inch, three quarter, one inch, and one and a half. And I have a, a complete and total explanation in a video that goes along with them today. Check them out. But remember, if you shop tspaz.com, when you shop online, you help us no matter what you buy. With that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our song of the day today. It fits right in, even though it doesn't seem like it, with my segment on the Boogaloo. And my assertion that they really don't understand what's going on. Because this is one of the most understood songs of all time. The song is by Bruce Springsteen, and it's called Born in the USA. This song was so misunderstood that Ronald Reagan started using it at campaign rallies because he thought it was about patriotism. I remember in, I guess it was late 79 or early 1980, after Reagan was elected, but before he took office, or maybe it was right after he took office, when the hostages from Iran were set free. I remember watching the TV set when there were four channels on it and that was going on and a plane landed in Germany with those guys on it, guys and girls. And they were finally home and they were free. And there was a whole bunch of Americans, probably, you know, military and military dependents, because it was Germany, waiting for them to get off that plane. And they were standing there. And the one guy started putting his hands up over his head. Born in the USA. He started singing. The whole crowd started singing it. Welcome them home. Because to those people, it was a good welcome and the song was patriotic. About how great America is. This song has nothing to do with America being great. This song is about how America shit on its servicemen who came home from fighting the Vietnam War. That's everything this song is about, how mistreated those men were. So if you can get to the point where a presidential campaign believes that this song is patriotic just because it matches their worldview, how hard is it to believe that the media does not understand you as a gun owner and who you really are and what you're really all about and what you're really willing to do to defend what you believe in. How big a leap is that? It's not a very big leap at all, is it? And I can show you that this continues to delude people based on their worldview. It's been in the past five years that occasionally when I hear talk radio, when I drive somewhere to drop my grandkids off or something, I'll listen to AM radio on the way back to the house just to see what those clowns are talking about. And I've heard several times several different right-wing radio hosts bring this song up. And they finally figured it out. They finally figured it out. It's not American. It's anti-American. And they proceed to trash Springsteen and trash this song. Not one of them. Not one of them if you said, did we treat our Vietnam veterans right when they came home? Would say, yes, we did. That every one of them to a man, Sean Hannity, I'm talking to you. Michael Savage, I'm talking to you. Every one of them to a man would say, we totally crapped on them. We totally disrespected them. We totally left them out to dry. We were awful to them. We called them baby killers. And we ignored them. And we left them to be homeless on the street. We left them to rot in VA hospitals. We treated them like, yes, that's what we did. This song says that. But because it's in any way not pro-America... Even though you completely agree with it, you disagree with it. This is how screwed up our country has become. This is how screwed up the modern world has become. People disagree with what they agree with because it doesn't even appear, not because it doesn't, because it appears to not match their worldview. What these right-wing nut jobs are saying, <laughs> they're saying, well, it's true, but because it doesn't make America look great, we shouldn't say it. 
That's how deluded everybody's become. That's what I'm telling you. The left does not know what they're messing with. They are a naked moron poking a hornet's nest. And they think the buzzing of the hornet that says, you you got to stop doing this, don't do this, is a threat of violence. It's a warning to the side that is addicted to violence, to cease violence before the people who are better at it are forced into it. With that, hope you enjoyed this week. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. <laughs>